Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan. Here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on the Israel National News slash radio. And uh, Phil Goldfeder off this week. Uh, we are actually going to make this a little bit of a mini episode due to some logistical issues around uh, today's bomb cyclone. Uh, that's hitting the Northeast, causing disruption everywhere. I don't even know where bomb cyclone comes from exactly, but uh, apparently that's when you uh, have some kind of uh, weather event that nobody has yet the name. But the real bomb that's come about, and for those of you, you know, we had thought that today was going to be a 2018. We'll set the table for the midterms. We'll talk about all kinds of interesting stuff on the plate in Washington as far as big policy initiatives, infrastructure, and entitlement reform, and all kinds of other things. But instead, the president has returned from a vacation in Florida. He's back to Washington. And not only does he unleash a tweet storm of epic proportions, of bomb proportions, when he gets back there on all kinds of issues, uh, including, well, we'll just leave... Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to categorize and get into all of them. But there is now this explosive book uh, on its way out by Michael Wolf, a former Vanity Fair and Guardian journalist, who incredibly had unfettered access. At least it seems had unfettered invited access, invited in by the president and the senior staff and Steve Bannon and others into the White House to chronicle the beginnings of the very unusual. Trump White House and what he found, the things that he found, are I, I think are truly astonishing. So if you're really enjoying, and I think a lot of people are, you know, it's been pointed out to me by some very smart people that the reason people were attracted to Trump is because they enjoyed the soap opera, they enjoyed the drama, they enjoyed, you know, the idea that we can think about him every day, he can dominate the news cycle, and then he can continue, you know, we can continue to be entertained. And at his heart, really, Trump is a very good entertainer. Um, and a lot of times, entertainers will make it in politics. There's no question. He's not the first one. He's not the last one. I mean, it's, it's something that does, um, that, you know, certainly exists out there. But the things or the items that go on in this book are, are I, in my mind, are just truly astounding. Um, uh, number one is just the the break that has happened with with Bannon and the back and forth that happened yesterday, um, and the way the president basically took out Bannon as you know, calling him a nothing, calling Steve Bannon. Uh, I mean, it just it, you know, basically saying he wasn't even there, he wasn't important. Now, this is remember, Steve Bannon was made was at one point apparently gonna, and everybody knew it that he was considered to be chief of staff, but he was too volatile in order to do that. And Bannon then became the co-equal with the chief of staff, Ryan Priebus, which of course is a really bad idea in and of itself, to have two co-equal people. We see that the White House is actually functioning as far as a, a staff and as far as the White House itself seems to be functioning uh, not uh, too indecently, I'm, aside from the president, the tweets and everything. But as far as the functions of the White House, they've improved tremendously under General Kelly. But to have those co-equals, so it's not as if Steve Bannon came out of nowhere. It's not as if the president can't take responsibility for him. You take responsibility for your hires. These are the people you put in charge. You at one point had put Steve Bannon on the National Security Council. So now to disavow him is itself, uh, and is itself astounding. 
But the other thing to keep in mind here, as we, you know, those that are uh, fans of the president and want to protect him, at least in their mind, is to think about the fact that Steve Bannon did articulate a vision. He does, does have a political philosophy. He is not afraid to talk about it. And he's not afraid to speak his mind. Now, if you didn't like the fact that he was leaking, you didn't like the fact that he was, you know, you knew where he stood on everything. And Trump seemed to be with him in a lot. Um, you know, the, the big takeaways from the book, um, the other thing is, of course, to keep in mind, is that the apparently he taped most of this stuff. So nobody so far has come out and said, uh, I think they, the word was they called the book trashy and they called, it's not even out yet. It's already the number one time uh, Amazon bestseller out there. It's not even released. But they say, well, you know, he wasn't really part of anything. He didn't really know anything. Um, you know, what apparently Steve Bannon did know, and he wasn't part of that meeting that they had with the Russians in Trump Tower, which uh, everybody seems to have lied about or forgotten about. Um, you know, that's, again, the problem is, is the mistruths and trying to do it. But nobody's really actually disavowing the book. I mean, nobody's disavowing the actual quotes. I think the only guy I saw that was Tom Barrick, who actually said, these are not my quotes. Nobody actually said that. Um, you know, a couple big takeaways. I think that, that, you know, we have to understand that this is incredibly unusual. This is actually shocking. I mean, there's no way. Why, number one, do you let a reporter like Michael Wolf into the White House and just give him unfettered access and let him camp out there and take interviews from people on a constant basis, on a daily basis? That's the big question, unless you want to create some kind of drama. But the interesting thing is that According to pretty much everybody that he quotes and talks to, nobody thought that the president was going to win. Nobody thought Donald Trump was going to win. Now, most people say, uh, well, I didn't think he was going to win either. And all the intelligent people out there in Washington and the Beltway and et cetera, they didn't think he was going to win either. So therefore, he wasn't going to win. So that's all that new. But the fact is, when you're in the campaign and you're in the thick of it, you actually think your candidate's going to win. I mean, that's the that's the thing. Um the other thing is how little respect they have for the president and his ability to master the job. It's very little. Uh, a lot of people seem to make comments that he just doesn't seem capable or, or I don't know if capable is much. I would actually interpret that as that he doesn't seem interested enough to master the job. I mean, yes, he, and, and you almost saw that last week that literally every day you're playing golf again. Now, golf is not a short game you know you're playing three four hours and even if you might be dealing with some issues etc you're still off the clock for quite a few hours you can't actually be engaged now it's not that there's not a lot to do i mean we are in a very significant conflict right now with north korea i mean there are conflicts going out throughout the world i mean we have afghanistan we have iraq we have syria we have all kinds of, to say nothing of of some of the domestic issues does that not need the president's attention? But I think somebody likened it to the idea here that this was the producers, right? Remember the Mel Brooks producers film where he puts on this film Springtime for Hitler and it's supposed to be a bomb and it ends up being tremendous success and he has to worry about how to prepay his investors. This was, I thought that was a great comment when you think about that as far as how how the team viewed 
Trump and that, you know, we're going to get, we're going to, we're, we're going to make a big splash. We're going to win the primary. It's going to be great, but we're not actually going to get to the finish line. So therefore we don't have to take any responsibility for anything. And, you know, the big thing with regard to Bannon becomes that the president actually, and this is a couple of weeks ago, and perhaps this is where the break comes and perhaps the president has now realized that, you know, the president likes to win. I mean, I think that's very clear. In the winning, and when he wins, and when the when a winning happens, he's happy and he's excited, and he can take credit for that. And, and I think uh, you know that was the thing about tax reform. Alabama was a big loser for him personally. He lost twice. I mean, that's unprecedented. Number one is a lot of presidents don't generally get involved in primary fights for exactly that reason. They might they might lose. He lost not once, but twice. And everybody begged him not to get involved in Roy Moore. Don't endorse him. Don't go back in. Don't get involved. And for some reason, he did. Now, whether it was Bannon or not, and maybe um, who knows exactly, but that was a stinging loss. There's no question that Donald Trump likes to win. The president likes to win. Everybody likes to win, but the president more so than he measures himself vis-a-vis winning. And when that happened, I think that that started to sour and he's like, well, maybe this guy is not so smart after all, even though I thought, you know, he was never really smart and never really did do it. Look, then to go out, however, and for the White House to say that Steve Bannon has lost his mind, it's... It's almost incredible because he didn't obviously lose his mind one day after another. He didn't get fired from the White House and then lose his mind. Obviously, there was if the, if he's unstable and this is not the kind of guy, that's not the kind of guy you should have in close proximity. That's not the guy you should have elevated to the National Security Council. But in addition to that, is the president continued to have a relationship, continued to speak to him. He continued to have they he continued to have a influence on the president. It's very clear that that was the case. And how do you square that? I don't even know how you square that away with everything. Um, you know, there's some other bombshells in there from what we've seen as, you know, like so Sean Spicer clearly was frustrated beyond anything and having to go out there and essentially lie about the crowd size, etc. And and other things. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole time discussing this book. It speaks for itself. I know the, the walkback is pretty incredible. Now, you know, of course, they're going after Bannon. It's disloyal. It's this, that, whatever. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to leave, um, you know, that as far as the other, you know, some of the other issues. But what I wanted to, I guess, just get at is if you like the drama of this great, you know, it's entertaining, it's exciting. Every day there's something you're glued to the TV set because what's going on as the in the as the White House turns. But there's serious stuff going on. And for those of us who have served in government at any level, it this is not what it's about. This is distasteful. This is not, you know, you might have a TV show like this, but this is not what we're looking for. You should not have people of to the extent you want to say Steve Bannon is incredibly disloyal. Well, you don't have people like that on your team. You don't bring them in. You don't put them in close proximity to power. You don't put them a stone's throw away or a stone's throw away, a, a, a pen's throw away from wreaking serious havoc with the world. You don't put them in a situation where they can do serious damage to the country and to the world. And that's, that's unfortunate. And I think that's a, something I've spoken to in the past as far as 
president saying he was going to get the best and the brightest people and get the people. Now, yeah, he did attract some very big names, some very important names to certain posts, but by and large, the staff picks and the staff and filling the jobs has been, well, at best, mediocre. Uh, a great example yesterday, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general who Trump has has turned on, and you know Jeff Sessions is controversial pick, and then he became a bad pick on the, the on the part of the president. And Jeff Sessions appointed a whole bunch of U.S. attorneys around the country, which is noteworthy for two reasons. Number one is, of course, the attorney general appointing them as opposed to the president appointing them because there's some statutory reason the acting attorney generals could no longer be uh, acting, I think, past a certain, I think, a 300-day mark or something like that. So they actually literally had to last second appoint them. The other thing is they just didn't, for whatever reason, the White House just didn't get around to doing this. Uh, a very important job. This is a very important function of the president and of the White House, and they just didn't do it. They didn't appoint these people. They didn't fill these posts, and there are posts throughout the government that are not being filled. Now, you could say, well, we want to downsize. Well, you can't downsize the U.S. Attorney's Office. These are necessary functions of that and the amazing thing is the president had an opportunity to put his imprint on the government he had an opportunity to shape the government through appointments which for some reason he didn't do now now finally getting around to doing it and now they can serve an interim title for a little bit but for whatever reason these kinds of things are just not happening and they didn't happen and they didn't and and it's just troubling to those who really want, in the end, I want the government to succeed. I want the president to succeed. I want it to happen. It might not sound... I know people feel, well, you're on the show and all you hear is negativity. I. It's not negativity. I actually... It's called criticism, and criticism is legitimate. And if I feel that the administration is not doing things, I want them... I want these things to happen. Yes, there are some good things that have happened, and I talked about it last week, and I thought that we're actually headed in the right trajectory, maybe into 2018. That would be a year of a little more accomplishment so you know what are we looking at now in with regard to 2018 i mean now you have a situation where at one point there were republicans who were afraid of bannon because they uh you know because he had the president on his side now he doesn't have the president on his side and he's got breitbart essentially on his side although donald trump jr seems to feel that it's not gonna that breitbart's not going to be with bannon anymore either and we'll have to see who the true believers are, are they trump people or are they you know alt-right uh or i shouldn't say i don't want to say are they bannon type people and how does what does that mean for republicans going into 2018 and how they how they deal with the midterms because it's there so it's there it's upon us and you know the one thing you know we talked to we'll talk about the house as we get there but just to set the table here um two, 10 races going on in the senate that are remember the senate is 51 49 for 2018 going into the midterms just to set the table and that's what we really want to do this week and that's just going to do it really briefly um is 10 races Nevada being number one as far as the most vulnerable Republican. Uh, that's the most vulnerable Republican, Dean Heller, who ran afoul of the president, as, you know, not vocally, uh, but uh, not really vocally, but ran afoul of the president and Bannon. Bannon is supporting a challenger to him, Danny Tarkanian, who has run before. And you do have a strong Democrat there and uh, running. And... Uh, 
Dean Heller is vulnerable, and he could lose in Nevada. Nevada is a state that Hillary Clinton carried. Arizona, Jeff Flake retiring. You don't know who the Republican is going to be. Strong Democrat there, everybody there. Um, so that's another one to look at. Missouri, Republicans are seem to be rallying around uh, one candidate, although we'll say I don't want to go through, I'm not going to go through all the names of every race because we don't know exactly who's going to be running and what it's going to look like. But Claire McCaskill, a state that has been increasingly red, a state that Republicans have won, that Donald Trump won. Claire McCaskill would seem to be vulnerable there. Indiana, Democrat. This is why the map has, you know, that's why the, the loss in Alabama was so critical because it looks like, you know, a lot of these are going to be very tight races given the climate out there. Uh, Indiana, Senator Joe Donnelly, who, remember, um, picked up his seat six years ago because Richard Luger got primaried and lost. West Virginia, Joe Manchin, that's a state that Trump carried by like 40 points. Uh, but Joe Manchin has, you know, has uh, some of his own base. North Dakota, incumbent Democrat, Heidi Heitkamp, who is, uh, you know, that's a very Republican state. Ohio, Sherrod Brown, that's also a state that Trump carried. Florida, a state that Trump carried. Senator Bill Nelson, we don't know who the Republican is going to be. Montana, uh, John Tester. Very red state, but John Tester kind of has his own brand, and who knows what's going to happen. And now Minnesota, as I said last week, as uh, Al Franken being the big loser here, potentially Democrats are the big loser if they lose this seat in Minnesota. Definitely a swing state on the congressional level. And they have Tina Brown, who was just appointed, but you know, appointed people don't necessarily prevail in elections. Just ask Luther Strange. So we'll have to... Uh, you know, we'll have to take it from there as far as uh, what's, you know, what's going to, uh, you know, as far as setting the table. The one thing I also want to talk about, uh, you know, just we close this little uh, truncated episode was the New York State Republicans uh, out there. And, you know, there's kind of this feeling, well, New York is hopelessly going to be uh, Democratic and there's a bunch you know, all the Republicans are potentially vulnerable. Uh, you know, the one interesting race going to happen in the primary right now is going to be New York 13, which is Dan Donovan versus Mike Grimm. Mike Grimm now potentially has did now disavowed Steve Bannon. He was banking and running on Steve Bannon's support here against Dan Donovan. Dan Donovan, uh, although close with the president, Dan, Dan Donovan has voted against tax reform. He voted against the Obamacare repeal. And uh, I think that's popular in the district overall, but it might not be popular in the Republican primary. Uh, Lee Zeldin out in the East End has definitely uh, been at a district that Trump carried. And you know, there's a primary on that side, the Democrats. And in a lot of cases, remember, this is going to be the good thing for the incumbents. If the incumbents don't have a primary, that there's going to be, like in New York 19 against John Fassett, they're like eight uh, Democrats running and even though they've raised a lot of money they're going to end up fighting with each other before they get to John Faso uh, John Katko up in uh, the Syracuse area has we don't know who the opponent is going to be yet could be Stephanie Miner who is the uh, popular former mayor of, Sy of Syracuse but John Katko has been very effective Trump won I'm sorry uh, uh, Clinton won that district uh, but I think Katko ran like 20 points ahead on that, um, Claudia Tenney running against Anthony Brindisi. That's going to be a tight race. Uh, Elise Stefanik up in the North Country, another Republican, potentially vulnerable, but she's prevailed before. As I mentioned, John Faso, uh, Tom Reed uh, up in the Finger Lakes. And it's a, a race that's actually been close in the past. So Chris Collins, a big Trump partisan, big Trump supporter. Will Chris Collins uh, you know, be able to... Uh, 
you know, carry that. Uh, he's had to some ethical, but it, it's a solidly Republican district. And I don't see why not. And as far as the dean of the congressional delegation, dean of the Republicans, uh, Pete King, everybody kind of says, well, Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk now trending heavily Democratic. Pete King can't survive. It's be very difficult. I mean, of course, depends on the opponent, depends who wants to get in there. But Pete King is an institution, extremely popular, and we'll have to see. So we're going to examine some of these races, like to you know, do with Phil over the coming weeks and months. You got a lot of time as the midterms take shape. But 2018 is going to be a really important year. And New York, actually, if I'm as I mentioned, all these seats are Democrats need uh, you know, 20 plus seats in order to uh, flip the house. It's New York is going to be a key component of that. And New York is going to be a real battleground. We never see New York as being a battleground. New York and New Jersey, I should say. Um, we never t- see New York and New Jersey being big battlegrounds politically because we only think in presidential terms. But that's going to happen right here uh, in the coming year, depending. Well, of course, depending on now, as I said, we talked about last week, the generic ballot, needing those people who want to would say all else being equal and never else being equal because we don't vote by party here. We vote by person. But the generic ballot now is like 12 plus and in some places is up to like 15, 16 plus for Democrats, which is an incredible number. And if you're a Republican strategist, you have to be thinking that is a very dangerous number to be running on. And somehow they got to figure out how to write the ship the soap opera this fighting in the white house is not helping anyone doesn't help the party i don't know who it helps exactly um and you know if you're a trump supporter you actually saying okay you want to say these are fake you want to say there's a whole thing you want to say i want him to succeed and none of this helps none of this help get keeps the government open none of this helps with the debt ceiling none of this helps with trade none of this helps with infrastructure none of this helps with anything any part it doesn't help with north korea and the like to say nothing of all those tweets and i venture to say that tweeting american policy vis-a-vis pakistan vis-a-vis the middle east vis-a-vis the palestinians cutting aid and that's that doing that on twitter it's refreshing it's fun it's exciting it doesn't help anything at all and one final thought on that in particular and you know i'm gratified that the president has doesn't want to subsidize the Palestinian Authority. Uh, I'm sickened by the stuff that that Abbas says and gets away with, and the fact that he you know sees that with impunity, and the fact that UNRWA uh, classes have anti-Semitism and they 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 lionize terrorists and they vilify Jews, and it's disgusting. But just keep in mind the six hundred million dollars that goes, or the three hundred million dollars, whatever the number is that goes towards this, somebody is going to have to pay for it. And I don't necessarily think it's the U.S. taxpayer, but in the end, it'll probably be Israelis that are going to have to do it uh, because the ultimately the kids need to go to school. Now, can we reform the school? Absolutely. But doing it via Twitter ultimately is just not because the, the Palestinian response has actually been pretty effective of we will not be blackmailed. You know, don't. Uh, you know, and, and of course, it's absurd to say, well, continue to give us money, even though we don't do it. I agree. Don't do it on Twitter. Twitter is not the right place for these types of discussions uh and i appreciate the sentiment i appreciate the fact that the president has been up front he's frustrated by the fact that the way these things have gone on and i'm frustrated too and i share it but doing it this way without a coherent policy and coherent message and the message of why things are being done and why things are being done that way i think is wrong-headed it's counterproductive and it doesn't advance anybody's agenda that's it 
for this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks, Allison Josephs. See you next week here on the Nachum Siegel Network.